All right, best check of the week. Steve Conroy on Jeff Cortnall. Whoa! Whoa, he was all right. Stunned, but okay. Best save of the week in hockey. Vince Riendo, the Blues fine rookie, making the save, and then Tom Tilly takes him into the net as Gino Cavallini clears the puck. Stand up and cheer. The Blues are back strong. This is our year. It's the Blues turn now. Yeah, it's the Blues turn now. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is. Season 7, Episode 3, Franchise Episode 136 of Let's Go Blues Radio. And of course, this is the 8th episode of the Talkin' Blues Summer Interview Series. We've had the last two weeks off because Kurt, Bill, and I have recorded a live show for the last two weeks and we're able to send it out on podcast. So, hope you enjoyed those, talking about the big moves the Blues made as well as the draft. Um, just uh, uh, interesting, interesting stuff that we were able to talk about. I wouldn't expect too many more of those over the summer. I know everybody loves Bill and everybody wants to hear Bill because Bill's the best. But uh, sorry, Bill is uh, not going to be with us for the foreseeable future until the season starts, or at least training camp starts. But you can expect that if the Blues do something else, that uh, Bill and Kurt will be back to record another show so we'll see if doug armstrong has any more tricks up his sleeve so before we get into today's interview i do want to ask for you to subscribe to our show on google play itunes stitcher and plex wherever you get your podcast that's where we're at you can also listen at letsgoblues.com slash radio i'd also like to ask that you give us a five-star rating on itunes if that's where you're getting the show really helps us and our ratings and helping Blues fans find the show if you think we're worthy of other Blues fans listening. Um, I know the Crest 8 loves to listen for you Twitter people. You know what I mean. Otherwise, you're probably going, what? But that's half the jokes on our show. Half of the audience gets it, the other half doesn't. That's usually how it works. So my guest on this week's show is Zipra Zeppa. People probably remember him from his time with KMOV, and he was also with KTVI for a little bit of time. Uh, He was the sportscaster that was famous for many things, uh, just his enthusiasm and energy, but most notably the Zippo Awards, which aired on Friday nights. Just somebody that I grew up with uh, watching on TV. I know that Kurt and Bill have both expressed to me that they remember watching his show Really, for me, I mean, I'm not a, a guy that sits around and watches the news. Even as a kid, I didn't want to, but uh, we never missed the Zippo Awards at the Ponder House. It was uh, always must-see TV for us. My dad was a huge fan, and uh, as well as the rest of my family. So, very exciting to get him on the show. Somebody that you may not have heard in a long time, or at all, depending on your age. But uh, if you are one of those people who are like, eh, I don't remember this guy... Uh, late 80s, early 90s was probably when he was hitting his peak, so uh, you may not fall into the right age range to remember him. Even if you don't, this was a fun interview. We get into a lot of St. Louis sports talk. We talk about his relationship with Whitey Herzog, uh, how he kind of got Bernie Federko's foot in the door with broadcasting. Um, and then, of course, we discuss the famous Zippo Awards, which were 
uh, given out to, it was a weekly segment on the sportscast that uh, he gave out to the weirdest and wackiest and best and worst plays in uh, the sports world, and they were always just so much fun to watch. A little bit more background on Zip for those that might agree, might disagree. I always considered him kind of the original local ESPN. You know, Rich Eisen and Stuart Scott changed the name of the game when they came in with Sports Center, and uh, people just really flocked to them because of their humor and, you know, the Yahtzee call and, and, and all the famous moments from those shows, which were great, and I'm not taking anything away from them. But locally, Zip was already kind of doing that, and we discussed that a little bit. So it's kind of cool to, to think about how locally you could argue this was being done in St. Louis before SportsCenter really got big. So, you know, it was a, an original idea, and I, I definitely don't think anybody took it from Zip, um, but it was just a, uh, the way that, I guess, sports broadcasts were going, and uh, Zip was kind of ahead of the curve there. So really exciting to talk to him about that. Um, I do want to share one more quick story before we get into the interview. So I shared this with Zip off air, and I know he loved hearing the story. But uh, I remember one night, it was a Friday night, I, I believe it was my brother had a, a baseball game. And it might have been one of my sisters, but my dad was always the coach. And so the last pitch happens, um, you know, fly out, strike out, whatever it was. And my dad instantly looks over at all of us going, okay. Fold up your chairs, fold up your chairs, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And so we had to quickly load up, he does the handshakes, and then he comes running off the field, and he just says, you know, good game, everybody. And then uh, we all walk up to him, we're like, Dad, what's the what's the rush? It was a late game, it was like 8, 8.30 maybe. And, and he goes, we gotta get home in time for the Zippo Awards. And my mom, of course, was like, oh, come on. He goes, no, seriously, let's go, let's go. So we all rush to the car, we walk in the door, and I remember we turned on the TV, it was like 10.20, right around when they started. We turn it on, and my dad clenches his fists and gives a fist pump and says, Wow, we just made it! Because the commercials were on, and that meant after commercials it was time for the Zippo Awards. So it was um, it was always very fun to, to watch that with my dad. It's just great memories for me as a kid, and same thing with, uh, you know, with the rest of my family. I know... I texted my brother and my mom and told them, you know, hey, I'm having Zipper Zeppa on, and, and they were both very excited too. So, pretty cool. Uh, looking forward to getting this out to you because I know that a lot of people are looking forward to this interview. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Zipper Zeppa. This is Jeff Ponder of Let's Go Blues Radio, and today I am joined by the former sports anchor for KTVI and KMOV. Uh, he is the director of Mater Media, a Catholic apostolate devoted to evangelizing the Catholic faith through book publishing, events, fundraising, and speaking engagements. He is Zip Zeppa. Thank you for joining me, Zip. Hey, Jeff. Great to be with you. So, uh, you still a, a big sports fan, even though you're not in the industry? Yeah, yeah, I really am. I follow the Cardinals and the Blues very closely. Um, you know, I can no longer tell you who the third string tight end of the Carolina Panthers is, nor do I care. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I follow the St. Louis teams very closely. Good. So, yeah, you're still in the area, right? 
Yep, absolutely. That's fantastic. That's good to hear. Yeah, you've been all over. We'll we'll get to that here in a bit. But uh, uh, what what made you decide to to stay in St. Louis after leaving the media? <laughs> well, I just came to love it. You know, I came here in 1984 and uh, to do TV, and thought I'd be here for a year or two because that was kind of my mo leading up to that point in time, and. Uh, just grew to love the city and uh, saw no reason to leave. Love the people, love the area, love the Cardinals and Blues. Uh, you went to high school in Detroit. You weren't a Red Wings fan by chance, were you? <laughs> I was a big Red Wings fan. You know, I'm, I'm an old guy, so I go way back. But I grew up with the great number nine, Gordy Howe, and Alex Del Vecchio, and a lot of great Red Wings back when there were only six teams in the NHL. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably grew up in the Howe era. So I think Blues fans can't fault you for that. That was a, a great era of hockey for Detroit hockey. Yeah, because in the 50s and 60s, when I was growing up, the Blues didn't exist. Right, <laughs> right. Um Okay, so let's kind of jump into a little bit of your career. So as I said, you, you went to high school in Detroit. You end up coming out to Boston University where your classmates included Howard Stern and Bill O'Reilly. And uh, kind, of, kind of jumping ahead, I know that uh, you were trying to get Bill to come here to St. Louis. Um, you still close with Bill O'Reilly today? Oh, yeah. We talk about once a week on the phone. Uh, we've been all over the world together on vacation trips. Uh, yeah, we're very close. That's great. That's good to hear. Yeah, so um, how well did you know Howard Stern, and, and what was he like in college? <laughs> you know, I met him the first day in class. We were in uh, journalism school together at Boston University, and uh, so we spent four years together. We were in the same curriculum, and uh, so I saw a lot of Howard. He looked pretty much like he does now, you know, the super long hair and uh, everything else. But, you know, we, we really didn't socialize. He kind of... Uh, ran with his own posse, if you will, and uh, I wasn't quite invited, so uh, <laughs> outside of the classroom we had little uh, little, uh, little to do, but he was he had a curious mind, you know, he'd pipe up in class now and then, you know, and I think uh, probably in the back of the room making snide comments to his buddies <laughs> more, but uh, it was interesting. I remember uh, Howard pretty well for those four years. Howard Stern being the bad boy in class, that's so shocking. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, it, it, while with Boston University, you broadcasted football and hockey games for Boston University. Um, you were the uh, I'm, actually it might have been that was after you graduated, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. uh, my senior year, I broadcast the games on the student radio station, which could only be heard if you were within about two blocks of a dorm. <laughs> but well, the year that's... after I graduated, I graduated to a professional job on the Beacon Sports Network, which was the voice of Boston University hockey, and uh, I did the play-by-play professionally. Um, so you uh, you did the play-by-play for that. Was that a field that you were kind of interested in, or was it more, I just need a job to get in the industry? Well, when I went to school, Jeff, I really wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated or be a columnist. But I fell in love with the immediacy of the broadcast in- industry uh, as a student working at the student radio station where you could your work could be uh, heard live versus print where it was the next day or the next month if you're working for a magazine or a periodical. So by the time I graduated, I really uh, wanted to go into the broadcast industry. I had fallen in love with Boston University hockey. And the year I did the play-by-play, uh, Mike Garuzioni and future St. Louis Blues center uh, Ricky Mahar were teammates on that team for which I was doing the play-by-play. Wow, that's quite the connection there. Yep, and they were great young guys. Uh, they were sophomores. They played in the same line together. Uh, again, they didn't have incredible 
super NHL skills, even though Ricky Mahar had a pretty good career, but uh, they were just special. And then when Ruzioni went on to score the winning goal against the Russians in the, in the uh, Olympics in 1980 and became world famous, I said, man, that's Mike Ruzioni. That's the guy who used to skate at BU. All right. Uh, so Rick Mahar, that did uh, when, when you moved to St. Louis and started doing the work for KTVI and KMOV and, and Mahar was here, did he remember you? Absolutely. Absolutely. His cool. parents used to listen to every game that I did when he was, uh, you know, playing college hockey. And uh, so we, we knew Ricky well, and it was such a joy to see him on the Blues when I was uh, uh, came, to, came to Channel 2, then to Channel 4. And I said to him, I said, Ricky, we both made it because we're both the same kind of guys. You know, he was kind of undersized, and a lot of people didn't think he was going to make it. And I was like the ugly sportscaster, and he thought I was going to make it. And I said, Ricky, we made it, man, we made it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's good to hear. Uh, so before you came to St. Louis, uh, one of your stops that you mentioned was in Cincinnati, and uh, you came up with a song called "The Ballad of the Bengals." Uh, I will, uh, I will, for those that follow me on Twitter and Facebook, I will post a link to that because I actually did find it on YouTube. Um, how did that song come about for you to decide to perform it? Well, I was excited about the team I was covering. I was the uh, sports director at the NBC TV affiliate, Channel 5 in Cincinnati, and I could sense this Bengals team was something special. The year before, I think they were like 4-12, and 12, but Forrest Gregg came in as the coach, and uh, they caught fire, and I said, man, this team's going somewhere. So I wrote a song predicting they would win the Super Bowl, <laughs> and uh, I included the names of almost every player on the team in this little song. We released it right before Christmas time. Good time for a song to be released. Right. And the Bengals not only made the playoffs, but they won two playoff games and they went to the Super Bowl. Unhappily, they lost to Joe Montana and the 49ers 26 to 21, or the song would have had a much greater length and sold many more copies. But uh, it became the fastest. Uh, selling single in the history of Cincinnati. Radio stations are playing it like every hour. It was a crazy time because the Bengals at that point in time had been nothing and had never been near the Super Bowl and the whole city was just on fire. Yeah, I mean, well, losing to Joe Montana only by five scores, that's that's not bad. No, it was, it was a tough loss, but uh, they were in it all the way. So uh, after that, again, a couple stops along the way, but you ended up coming to St. Louis where you're at now. Um, and again, you worked for KTVI first and eventually moved over to KMOV, uh, Channel 2 and Channel 4, for those that remember those days. Uh, but you introduced almost right away something that I know everybody's wanting me to ask you about, the Zippo Awards, which for those that may not know might be too young. They were the best, the worst, and the weirdest performances in the wild and wacky, wonderful world of sports. Uh, where did you find these clips, and how did you come up with the idea to include it on your Friday broadcast? Well, it kind of evolved from other markets. I worked in uh, the smaller towns. I worked in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I worked in Saginaw, Michigan, the minor leagues of TV, working my way up. And uh, in those cities, I saw a guy in New York named Warner Wolf, who was a major star, do the best plays of the week. So I started doing the best plays of the week in Saginaw, and then I a guy in dropping a pop fly and everybody thought that was funny so I made it the best and worst plays of the week 
And then uh, one week I threw in the San Diego chicken doing something crazy, and <laughs> everybody laughed at that. So I made it the best, worst, and weirdest plays of the week. <laughs> Took that to a Cincinnati, refined it a little bit. Then I went to Boston. We put in the uh, root beer rag music written by Billy Joel as the uh, under as the underlying music. And by the time I got to St. Louis, we pretty much had it down, and uh, we call it the Zippo Awards, and uh, <laughs> the rest is kind of history. That's that's great. So uh, when I told my two co-hosts, my usual co-hosts, that I was going to have you on for an interview, the first thing that both of them said was, make sure you ask him about the squirrel on the water skis. <laughs> that was one of my favorite Zippos of all time, the water skiing squirrel. They had him, uh, this squirrel in a, some exhibition in a mall, and they had like a little kid's bath, uh, a little kid's swimming pool set up, and the squirrel would be hooked up to his little little skis, and he would ski around in a circle in the baby pool. It was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I remember that clip. It was it was great. I tried finding it on YouTube, but I can't find it anymore. I'll have to dig a little deeper, I guess. You know, Jeff, it's such a shame. I mean, this was not the age of technology when I came up. No. We didn't even have cable TV when I came to St. Louis. That's true. So 99.9% .9 of the stuff I did on television has been lost. Yep, that's Because a shame. it just wasn't saved. No, In those days, they used to record the shows on one-inch tape, and after a year to save money, they would erase it all and tape over it all. So, <laughs> <laughs> Very little was saved. Well, Zip, let me ask you, because this, again, you uh, you kind of changed, at least for, for me and what people in, in your markets you work for, you kind of changed the, the landscape of what a sports broadcast at the end of the news was. Um, and then shortly after, I mean, at that time, ESPN was kind of in its infancy. Um, but eventually, guys like Stuart Scott, Rich Eisen, started coming in and, and doing this wacky stuff on SportsCenter. Um, was that something you think that uh, was kind of eventually going to evolve, or was it something that, I don't want to say they stole from guys like you, but I mean, was it something that made you say, hey, I, I kind of do that? Well, I just thought sports should be fun, Jeff. You know, I always thought sports should be entertaining. And part of it was I was always told that I was too ugly to be on TV and make it to the big time. So I knew I wasn't going to compete favorably by just sitting there reading the scores with the pretty boys. Uh, so I had to do something different. And uh, my love for sports, my energy level was very high. My creativity was through the roof. And I said, well, look, this isn't the end of the world. This isn't terrorism. This isn't people dying. This isn't all the horrible things we hear about the first 20 minutes of a newscast on. This is sports. Let's make it fun. This should be entertaining and something people can have some fun with watching. So that was my philosophy. I always felt if I couldn't make the viewers laugh or chuckle two or three or four times during a sportscast, I'd failed. I always tried to entertain as well as inform. And this also played well because, uh, you know, I, I, I was cognizant of the fact that 50% of the viewers were women and at that point in time there were less women interested in sports back in the 80s and uh, they'd be bored by the recitation of scores and the usual drudgery of talking about who won and who lost but if I could make it entertaining and throw some humor into it then the women's audience would increase for us and so that was the philosophy to make it informative and yet very entertaining. Uh, how early on in your career did you realize that was the angle you wanted to go? Well, I was uh, working in Saginaw, Michigan, freezing my uh, rear end off for three years, <laughs> and I was 
desperate to get out, so I used to go to major markets on my vacation and show my little tape to the news directors and say, what do I have to do to work here? And a guy in Philadelphia said, listen, son, if you want to make it to a major market, if you ever do get there, you will be the ugliest TV sportscaster in the world. He said, if you want to make it, uh, I would be different, son. <laughs> so I took that advice back to St. Louis, uh, to Saginaw, where I could experiment, and I became different. I began doing exactly what I was talking about, throwing humor into the sports cast, throwing wry comments in, using video in crazy ways, which eventually led to the Zippo Awards. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great story. Um, so, again, when you worked with KMOV, uh, again, maybe this is just personal reflection, but uh, you worked alongside two very legendary broadcasters, two people that I grew up with watching and, and never missed a show of because my parents were such big fans, uh, Larry Connors and Julius Hunter. Um, what do you think it was that kind of made them different than everybody else? They were great professionals. They were serious news people. Uh, they had depth to them. They wrote a lot of their own stuff, which was somewhat unusual for the news anchors in those days. Um, and they had a camaraderie. They had a professionalism, and yet uh, they were so on top of their game. Uh, you know, the little ad libs between stories, uh, the way they would handle, you know, when a tape went down. Uh, they were the consummate professionals. And they had a good rapport with each other, too. Um, so in your time there with KMOV, you actually had a pretty famous intern come through, uh, Joe Buck. Um, could could <laughs> yep. you tell almost, I mean, was it something where you could tell right away this guy was destined for greatness? Um, and is it somebody that you might still keep in touch with? Uh, those are interesting questions, Jeff. Um, you know, I knew Jack Buck, who, of course, was the voice of the Cardinals at that point in time. And as we were chit-chatting, you know, as we often did before games or in the lunchroom at Bush Stadium or something, Jack would say, you know, my son, uh, he, wants to do these, he wants to do the Cardinals. He wants to follow me and be the Cardinals radio broadcaster. I keep telling him, Joe, TV is the way, TV. <laughs> so uh, he said, uh, I said, well, you know what, we've got an, an, an opening for an internship in the summer, Jack. Uh, we could bring him in as an intern. He said, oh, that'd be great. At that time, Joe was at Indiana University. I think it was uh, between his sophomore and junior years. And by the way, Joe, Joe Buck never graduated from Indiana University. He didn't need to. By the yeah. time he was 22 or 23, he was doing the Cardinals games on radio. Right. And who needs a degree when you're doing that kind of stuff and have that kind of ability? <laughs> but Joe came over as our intern and... Uh, it's true that his first television appearance was on one of my local sportscasts. I sent him down to Bush Stadium to do an on-air interview with a Major League Baseball player, which we never would normally do, but Joe was Jack Buck's son and showed a great aptitude for sports, and he handled it really well on live TV, and uh, the rest is history. That's great. Um, so was it kind of intimidating to, to have uh, legendary broadcaster Jack Buck, who was kind of a a king in St. Louis. Uh, was it intimidating to have his son work for you at all? Were you afraid, like, oh, I kind of hope he doesn't tell Jack about this? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Joe was a good kid. Uh, you could tell he was serious about uh, his profession, and even though he was 20 years old when he was interning for us. But uh, he just watched and wanted to learn, you know, the behind-the-scenes stuff and editing tape and those kind of things. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a pleasure to have him. Where He's only here maybe two and a half months, but uh, it was good. So uh, in that time, you also started a segment called Sunday Nights with Bernie. 
and that was with uh, uh, current Blues broadcaster and NHL Hall of Famer Bernie Federko. Um, do you think this was kind of the stepping stone for him to get into the booth and, and start being a part of Blues broadcasts? I do. You know, Bernie was a great player. He was still playing at that point in time. Um, but as usual, the Blues would always just flame out in the playoffs and be <laughs> out of it before the uh, say, semifinal round of the Stanley Cup. So we're going to continue to cover uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs. So we thought, well, who better than uh, the biggest star the Blues had at the time, Bernie Federko, future Hall of Famer, to do commentary for us. So we introduced Bernie to the TV business and began doing the show on Sunday nights. He'd come on and analyze what was going on in the playoffs, as only some insider like Bernie could do. And uh, it was a lot of fun. He, uh, he took to it readily, uh, a little nervous at the beginning, you know, and so on. But uh, um, that was his start in television. So, not to, I don't want to sit here and talk too much about ratings because, I mean, it's an arbitrary number sometimes, but uh, were the ratings pretty high for that segment? I feel like at that time that was something that you probably didn't see a lot on television. Right, yeah, you didn't see the, uh, the big athlete uh, analysts, especially on a local uh, TV sportscast. Uh, we moved to the Sunday night show, so we had 30 minutes to play with. We could give them a little more time. But, yeah, I mean, that was a, a calculated uh, move on our part. The other stations were beginning to do Sunday night shows as well. And we thought, well, if we have Bernie Federico on analyzing the playoffs, how can they compete with that? Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't know how you can. I mean, he was just as big as any other athlete in St. Louis at the time. Yep, he was, yeah. So uh, you've, again, you've, you've worked with many people. Um, we'll get into a little bit of the radio personalities work you've done, but uh, who was your favorite athlete or former athlete that you've ever had on your show or interviewed? A guy I really loved was, uh, was Ozzy Smith. Ozzy and I had great rapport. Um, you know, he, was, uh, he came to St. Louis before me in 82, won the World Series. I came in 84, so I was with him during his uh, World Series years of 85 and 87. And, uh, boy, you talk about an icon. You talk about a superstar. Again, another future Hall of Famer in his sport. Uh, so Ozzy and I had a great rapport, and, and I helped him. Uh, late in his career, he was becoming a free agent. And the Cardinals at that time, old Gussie Bush had died. The team was being run by the lawyers who weren't so much up on baseball as they were at making money or running their business at the brewery. And uh, Ozzy began doing a little tour. He went to Kansas City and talked to the Royals and was going to go to other cities and talked about them signing as a free agent, even though he wanted to stay with the St. Louis Cardinals. But the lawyers weren't offering him enough money. So finally I did a fist-pounding commentary on the air, and I said, if the Cardinals don't re-sign Ozzy Smith, those guys should fill the ball club. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So the next day, I thought it was a great commentary. We got great response. The next day, I was called on the carpet by the general manager, and he said, I have one question for you, Zip. Do you know how much advertising money Anheuser-Busch spends with his television station? Oh, boy. <laughs> and I said, I said, sir, I do not. But if they don't re-sign Ozzy Smith, they should sell the ball club. <laughs> <laughs> Sticking to your guns. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you were... And they did. And Ozzy was very grateful because soon after that commentary, they gave him a, a three-year extension and all the stuff he stayed in So it was good. That's fantastic. So you, um, at that time, I mean, I guess around in that same same time frame, um, 
you had a little, I guess, run-in with, with Whitey Herzog. We don't have to get too much into that, but I'm just wondering, is that something that eventually smoothed over over time, or is that something that kind of lingered uh, as Whitey continued to, to manage the team? It lingered for quite a while, Jeff. I did this piece in spring training. Uh, this was uh, when the Cardinals had failed to make the playoffs in 83 and 84. Then they lost Bruce Sutter to free agency. Things were not looking good. And uh, they had Bill Verdon down in camp as a uh, uh, special instructor. So I just actually reported that Tal Smith, the new baseball consultant for the Cardinals, had hired Bill Verdon as the manager of the New York Yankees. And then when he went to Houston, he hired Bill Verdon as the manager of the Houston Astros. And lo and behold, here he is in St. Louis Cardinals camp. And I just said, if anything happens to Whitey, Bill Verdon could be the guy they'd consider as the next manager of the Cardinals. Well, Whitey never saw the report because in those days he didn't have satellite or anything. He was down in Florida, and the report ran in St. Louis. But some of his friends in the area misinterpreted the report, told Whitey I was trying to get him fired and get Bill Verdon hired, which wasn't what I was trying to do at all. I was just trying to alert people that, you know, this new guy's come in, and if he doesn't like Whitey and the team's not going well, this could happen. So Whitey became very angry from the uh, reports, the, the verbal account of this um, piece I had done and accused me of trying to get him fired. And I said, Whitey, I wasn't trying to do that. Zip, I'll never speak to you again. And for a long time, he never did an interview with me. And he finally broke down the year he resigned as Cardinals manager. We made peace. He did a 10-part series with me on all the ways he'd come to St. Louis and all the glory years and everything. And about two months later, he resigned, shocking everybody, as Cardinals manager. I really think he knew the writing was on the wall and he was going to get out. And he made peace with me and got a lot of publicity out of the 10-part series I did with him. Right. But Whitey's a good guy. We've seen each other many times through the years. Love Whitey. Uh, so what's the biggest story you think you ever covered? Was it the, the Whitey resignation? Uh, I think the World Series teams of 85 and 87 were, were bigger, of course. Losing in the seventh game of the World Series both of those years, uh, one year when they lost Vince Coleman for the entire World Series when the, the tarp ran over him and he injured his leg, and one year when they didn't have Jack Clark in 1987, but still made it the seventh game of the World Series each of those years. Such exciting teams, the running Redbirds of Whitey Herzog, uh, you know, Vince Coleman stealing 100 bases three years in a row, Ozzie Smith, Jack Clark, Willie McGee winning the batting title and being MVP one of those years. Just an electric time to be a Cardinals fan. And um, I think that was the, the most fun I ever had. Saddest story was covering the uh, St. Louis football Cardinals leaving town, mm. the first of two teams to leave town in the NFL. Um, probably the saddest was that. And, uh, oh, I don't know, over the course of so many years, there were so many, so many big stories. So, you again, you were the founder of uh, Radio Personalities, Inc. You worked on shows like Talking Round Ball with Dick Vitale, Offsides with Dan Deardorff. You also had a sports trivia show called The Great American Sports Trivia Show. Um, what was your favorite of those to work on? Well, both Vitale and Deardorff were great guys. Vitale would knock off five radio shows, one-minute commentaries, and we'd syndicate them. We got them on about 250 radio stations around the country. And then Dan Deardorff, of course, was right in St. Louis. And at that point in time, he and I had the same agent, and his agent got him the job as doing the uh, color commentary on Monday Night Football, which back in the day was huge. 
So uh, Dan used to come over to my house every week. We set up a little studio, and he'd record five one-minute commentaries on pro football during the football season. And we got that syndicated on 400 radio stations. So uh, it was a lot of fun to do. They were great to work with. And uh, we did that for a few years, and uh, it was good stuff. So um, kind of flashing forward a little bit to now, um, obviously there's – at least three or four big commentators in sports that were sports anchoring, uh, doing what you did. Are there anyone that, that kind of impresses you the most? Is there anyone in the St. Louis sports industry that you're just kind of like, yeah, that's that's he's he's the next big guy. My favorite is Frank Cusimano. I think Frank does a great job. You can tell watching his sportscast. There's a lot of thinking going on there. I really like that. Uh, but in general, I'm kind of dismayed that uh, there isn't a lot of color and excitement in a lot of local sportscasters, not only in St. Louis, but in different parts of the country. It's almost like we've regressed. You mentioned Sports Center; That was a big step up. I was kind of the forerunner of that in the local market, as were some other local sportscasters. Then they took that to the national level and uh, put humor into a sports center and uh, the events of the day. So I kind of lament that uh, more young sportscasters aren't, uh, stepping out and trying to be a little more different, being a little more daring, uh, trying to uh, push the envelope a little bit instead of just reading the scores. So, um, again, in the 90s, you uh, you leave the industry. We'll get into some of the work you've done since, but um, uh, why did you uh, end up leaving the industry altogether? In honesty, Jeff, I burned out. I'd worked in uh, five different cities at six different television stations. Uh, every night of my life in the East Coast, the shows around 11 o'clock. In the Central Time Zone, the late show was at 10 o'clock at night. I'd go home at 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning every night of my life for 19 years, and I just had no life. I just said, look, I love, love, love this job, but I hate, hate, hate the lifestyle I've never been married. I don't have any kids. I don't have any family. I hardly have any friends I can talk to because I'm working all the time, especially the night hours. So uh, I was just burnt out. I was spent. I just said, that's it. Enough of this. I'll go on and do something else. So, again, you uh, obviously get into a little bit more of the religious side of the media. You wrote a couple books, My Rock and Salvation, which is a, a teen novel, and then your autobiography, For a Greater Purpose, My Life Journey. Um, what was your process in deciding you wanted to write those books? And, and um, I mean, was that kind of, was that kind of the, something you thought, this is the next step for me and this is something I'm going to continue to do? Yeah, I was a journalism major at Boston University, and I said earlier, I always wanted to be a writer. So I thought, let's try to influence the world for good. Books is a way to do our way to do that. And uh, so I wrote the novel for teens to have them think about uh, the moral decisions they're making in today's world. Um, set in St. Louis, uh, we got 20,000 copies out there to young people. Um, it's not preachy, but it uh, certainly shows them an alternative to the worldly ways that they're subjected to in every place they turn these days, especially with technology. For greater purposes, for greater purposes, the story of my life and, um, uh, I just wanted to share what I've been through, my life journey, and um, I bared my soul in that book. Um, took about a year to write. Uh, happy with the way it came out. Get many comments on uh, from people that uh, learn a lot of surprising things about me as I bare my soul about my life. 
So tell me a little bit about modern media. Um, how can someone book you, and, and how did you decide to um, to kind of move into that medium for uh, uh, religious media? Well, I didn't want uh, the major publishing companies rejecting books or editing books down or taking spiritual stuff out of books. So I thought the only way to have total control over the content is to start a publishing company. We'll publish the books ourselves. And in that way, we also could offer them for free to get them out to as many people as possible. And we're happy to do that. We do sell the books on Amazon.com. But if you go to our website, Monster Media, you can get copies of our books for free. So we're just trying to reach as many people as we can, influence as many people for good as we can. And that's the philosophy of Monster Media. So for someone who... Um I mean, who, I guess you would say, well, who's your audience? I mean, who who specifically are you trying to reach the most? I think um, since we're Catholic apostles, I'd say Catholics, but also fallen away Catholics, and we, of, of which there are many, and also uh, non-Catholics or just people that want a good read, want an entertaining book to read, want a, a heartfelt autobiography to read. Uh, we just published uh, last year a book about a uh, kid who has hydrocephalus, uh, water on the brain, a huge head. He died before his ninth birthday. But it's, endear- it's an endearing story written by his mother who adopted him, uh, who lives in St. Louis. Would a major publisher touch that book? Maybe not. But we were happy to put that out there because it inspires people. Uh, we're working on one right now, uh, an 84-year-old doctor, a professor at St. Louis University, telling his life story. He's an old Irishman. It's hilarious stuff, Jeff. But would a major publisher pick it up? Probably not. But Monster Media is doing it, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be entertained. Zip, this has been honestly just a, an excellent interview for me as I've told you off air uh, my dad was a, a huge fan of yours and um, always made sure that we never missed the Zippo Awards every every Friday night so uh, and we were all heartbroken when you left so it's uh, it's nice kind of reconnecting with you even though I know you don't know me but for me it's like reconnecting with you because I spent uh, every weeknight with you pretty much so uh, thank you very much for coming on I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, tell our audience how they can interact with you on social media as well as uh, where they can find Modern Media. Sure. Uh, ModernMedia.org is probably uh, the best place. Find our website, M-A-T-E-R-M-E-D-I-A.org. Also, you can find me on Facebook. i got thousands of Facebook people, but uh, once in a while, (laughs) I talk to anybody I can on there. And uh, to reach me for booking speaking engagements, I'm doing emceeing of events, I'm doing uh, motivational speaking, I'm doing spiritual speeches, I I even do a little auctioneering. So uh, if anybody wants me to come out, I love, love, love coming out and being with the people. Uh, So just contact me through MontereMedia.org or on Facebook, and uh, we can go from there. If, If somebody wanted to donate to Modern Media, how would they do that? Just go to the website, matchmedia.org. We're a 501c3. It's totally uh, tax deductible, and uh, there's a uh, giving uh, page on there, and it's very easy to do. Very cool. Well, thank you, Zip. This has been a real pleasure for me. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, Jeff, you're a great professional. You've been very gracious. I really appreciate that. appreciate the memories of you and your dad watching the old Zippo Awards. Uh, congratulations on Let's Go Blues on the podcast and uh that's a great thing we need that kind of enthusiasm uh, in the sports world in my opinion so jeff it's been a pleasure thank you i appreciate it so i again want to thank zip for coming on it was a lot of fun talking to him if you want to follow him on twitter you can find him at zip Rezepa. 
That's Z-I-P-R-Z-E-P-P-A. And as he said, too, you can find him on Facebook and be his friend on there as well. Um, Just a a very energetic and fun guy. And glad to see that he has not changed since his local sportscast just about, man, 15, 20 years ago. So, of course, I want to thank the creators of the Let's Go Blues song that you hear every week. That's for Smash and Gene Ackman. And, of course, uh, the late Johnny Johnson, uh, Johnny Be Good, is a great song. It was actually written about him by Chuck Berry. So um, shows the kind of level of fame he was at. If you want to follow us on Twitter, the show's Twitter handle is at LGB Radio. The other host of the show, Kurt Price, is at Kurt Price. That's Kurt with a C. Bill Day is at Billy Blue Note. And myself can be found at jponder94. Guest for next week, another pretty exciting one. We've had a couple in a row here. We've got a, a good streak going. Chris Kerber of KMOX and of uh, wherever you get your St. Louis Blues radio will be on. Uh, to talk about the moves the Blues have made, as well as his uh, career path to becoming the uh, kind of a dream job for him, as it was for Dan P. Kelly when he was on, talking about his dream job. Same thing for Chris Kerber. I've uh, been able to announce for his uh, his St. Louis Blues. It's uh, great for him, and, and I know that he's excited to talk about that and, and share that uh, the, the knowledge of how he got that position and, and how he's grown as an announcer. Well, again, I want to thank Zipra Zeppa for coming on and uh, look forward to getting the interview out next week with Chris Kerber. So, of course, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Go Blues Radio.
I'll tell you about my favorite football team. Well, the GM is a genius. He brought pro football to this town. He's known far and wide for all he's done. Of course, his name is Paul Brown. But when he left the sidelines, the Bengals went into a spin. And after 4-12 and 4-12, and and Paul said, we got to win. So Forrest Gregg, the former Packer, whom Lombardi called his best, came to coach in Cincinnati and put the players to a test. Well, the team did better and better in four new uniforms. It was time, so the stripes went on the helmets while the boys kept up their climb. Let me tell you about the running game. I got a tank named Pete who lugs it through defenses big and small, and Charles and Archie are ready for whenever they get the call. They run behind a bunch of guys who do their job so well. They're the men of Jim McNally, and they're proud, and you can tell. There's the Mexican connection, I'm talking Anthony and Max, with Lapham Bush and Moon Pie, they knock opponents on their backs. Oh, those tiger stripes keep coming, they'll be known from pole to pole. They're the Cincinnati Bengals moving toward that Super Bowl. There's Ken Anderson a throwin' behind that big offensive front to Collinsworth and Curtis, so they rarely have to punt. There's Steve Kreider out of Lehigh, David Verser, ML2, and Danny Ross and Patrick Mack. There's nothing they can't do. Now Infani will send the plays in from his booth up high above, then he'll watch them score and score some more. That's the offense that we love. Hank Buller built the defense with the help of Moe and LeBeau, and with Whitley Edwards and Browner right up front, it halts its foe. That's Jim LeClaire and Cameron are the meanest men inside, and Reggie and Bo Harris make runners run and hide. While Breeden, Kemp, and Simmons, Fuller, Griffin, and Brian Higgs, with Ken Riley, stop all passes and make receivers take their legs. Oh, those tiger stripes keep coming for us men are on a roll. They're the Cincinnati Bengals going to that Super Bowl. With an offense that explosive and a defense that won't yield, the guys with stripes upon their helmets refused to lose out on the field. They took it to the Oilers and to Cleveland by the lake, and the Steelers couldn't make it. Yep, that's right, it's no mistake. It ain't Cleveland, Houston, or Pittsburgh to whom the crown belongs. It's those who wear the stripes and play for Greg, about whom we sing the song. Oh, those tiger stripes keep coming for us men are on a roll. They're the Cincinnati Bengals gonna win that Super Bowl. Oh, those tiger stripes keep coming for us men are on a roll. They're the Cincinnati Bengals gonna win that Super Bowl. Forest boys are gonna do it. Gonna be Super Bowl champs. See y'all at the Silverdome.